This episode of Your Stories is sponsored by Cards Against Humanity. They asked us not to read an ad, so enjoy the show! Your Stories is a wonderful opportunity to share all the highs and lows of being a nerd. You know that hobby you have that you don't talk to anyone about? It's a secret you don't like to share because it might make you feel weird. Maybe you're into something different. Uh, comic books, fantasy football, push-ups. Your stories, to me, has been this really kind and welcoming space where people just have the guts to be really honest and they share their voices and their stories with everyone there. No questions asked. Uh, I've heard stories about all those things. Uh, maybe not not a lot of push-ups. I maybe haven't heard a lot of stories about push-ups. The Nerdalogs is group therapy meets Toastmasters. I know there's always a place where my odd thoughts and unusual habits will be welcomed and championed in a warm, supportive environment by other nerds just like me. And what's fun is you'll see people in the audience one month, and then all of a sudden they uh, go up and tell their story. So your story becomes their story and their story is your story and then it's our story and then it's a podcast so it's everybody's story and then you've shared it and gosh that's great huh and even if you don't think you're a nerd you probably are it's easily the most midwestern thing i've ever been a part of Hi, everybody. My name is Eric Arnell, and this is part one of the Nerdalogs Presents Your Stories July 2015 podcast. Uh, this episode was a special collaboration with the Chicago Design Museum. In fact, Museum Executive Director Tanner Woodford curated this episode's speakers, for which we are incredibly thankful. Uh, he also picked the theme of the night, which is Discovery. Uh, we recorded this episode smack dab in the middle of Chicago Design Week, and it was a super great time with some really illuminating personalities. Uh, this episode, you'll hear from Deputy Commissioner of the Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, Tracy Hall, Morningstar designer and professor, Philip Burton, Director of Strategic Innovation for the YMCA, Joey Nakayama, and Vice President at AIG Chicago, Mike Josie, plus our own Claire Friedman tells the story and sings, as do Dwight Hassler and myself. Uh, I've got a couple upcoming events to plug, but first I want to sincerely thank everyone who contributed to our Kickstarter for Fisticuffs, uh, a card game we designed. The project funded successfully a couple weeks ago, and everyone who pledged should see the completed product this fall. Uh, we're incredibly grateful to all of you for helping us make a thing that we like, and we really hope you like it too. You're all the best. Also, if you're out at PAX in Seattle next month, uh, it's expected that we'll have a few copies there to show you, so check it out. Uh, now for some plugs. We've got two Your Stories recordings coming up in the near future. First, next Thursday, July 16th, we'll be doing a couple shows at Adler After Dark, a really cool adults-only event put on by the Adler Planetarium in Chicago. Uh, it's Pluto Night, so our theme for the show is Run to the Litter. If you'd like to be in consideration to tell a story based on that theme, you can submit your piece via the Adler website. Also, you'll probably want to get tickets sooner rather than later, as these tend to crowd up fast. Uh, second, our regular monthly Your Stories will be that Sunday, July 19th, at the Sum Office Theater, 1917 North Elston in Chicago. That event is free to attend as usual, and we're featuring our good friend and fellow podcast host Mark Coulomb, who's leaving Chicago for Denver at the end of the month. The theme of that night is fans, and I think it's going to be really special for a couple reasons, so we hope to see you there. 
Other than that, man, you already know about all the other awesome Nerdalogs podcasts like MBSing and Talking Games and every great podcast sponsored by the Chicago Podcast Co-op. If you don't, go to chicagopodcastcoop.com and educate yourself. You'll thank yourself later. Uh, so that's all I've got for now, guys. So just enjoy the show. I think a lot of you haven't been to the show before, so you're going to hear a lot of stories tonight. You're also going to hear some music that fits the theme of the night, and the theme, as suggested by Tanner, is Discovery. <gasps> and so, what way did we take the music with that? Dwight, I think this was this is your call. What was was it? it? Yeah. yeah. Oh. Oh. Um, <laughs> right, right. So, it's, uh, it's musicians that were discovered by other musicians. Oh. Yeah. Right? Ooh. Right? I, I, I did that. I thought of that. Well, so what did, what did you just say? You did say like Justin Bieber. Isn't that interesting? All right, well, that's it. That's a great introduction to what we're about to do. Baby, 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 oh 
Claire. With Dwight. Hi, this is Eric Arno. Yeah. So uh, we're doing a lot of more contemporary stuff it. tonight. I can do and, it. Uh, so this is, I think, a first. Claire, have you ever rapped before for us? Uh, once on a Beastie Boys song, and I didn't want to. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Um, and this is, I have one of those moments after I was like, oh, I got this, where I was like, why did I volunteer myself? <laughs> so this is me following through on my own stupidity. I know uh, I know he's not out there, but maybe he'll listen. I don't know if anyone's going to get this, but I just want to dedicate this song to James D'Amato. Uh, Thank you, Mary Beth. I knew you'd get it. To seize everything you ever wanted In one moment Would you capture it Or just let it slip Knees weak, arms are heavy. This vomit on his sweater already. Mom's spaghetti, he's nervous. But on the surface, he looks calm and ready to drop bombs. But he keeps on forgetting what he wrote down. The whole crowd, oh, so loud. He opens his mouth, but the words won't come out. He's choking now. Everybody's joking now. The clocks run out. Time's up over plows. Snap back to reality. Oh, there goes gravity. Oh, there goes gravity. Choked, he won't let it go. He won't let it go. Won't have it, he knows his whole back to the ropes don't matter. He's dope, he knows that, but he's broke. He's so stagnant, he knows when he goes back to his mobile home. That's when it back to the lab again. Yo, the whole rhapsody, he better go capture this moment and hope don't do This world is mine for the taking Made me king as we move toward a new world order Normal life is boring But superstardom's close to postmortem And only grows harder Homie grows hotter He blows, he's all over These holes, he's all on him Coast to coast shows He's known as a globe trotter. Lonely roads, God only knows He's grown farther from home He's no father He goes home and barely knows his own daughter Mahocha knows cause here goes the whole water His home don't want him no more He's cold product he moved on to the next mo who flows He knows dope and sold daughter Sold the soap opera and sold and unfolds I suppose his old partner But the meat goes on Motherfucking roof off like two dogs caged. I was playing in the beginning, the mood all changed. I've been chewed up and spit out and booed off stage. But I kept rhyming and stepped right into the next cipher. Best believe somebody's paying the pie piper. All the pain inside amplified by the fact that I can't get by with my nine to five and I can't provide the right type of life for my family. Cause Mandy's goddamn who stamps to buy diapers. And it's no movie, there's no Mackay Piper. 
this is my life and these times are so hard it's getting even harder try to feed and water my C plus teeter totter caught up between being a father and a prima donna baby mama drama screaming out of too much for me to want to stay in one spot another day in monotony has got me to the point like a snail I've got to formulate a plot or end up in jail and shot success is my only motherfucking option failure's not mama love you but the trail has got to go I cannot grow old and sail a slot so here I go with my shot feet fail me not this may be the only opportunity that I got you better with someone in the Nerdlogs telling a story and tonight she volunteered to do that as well so this is Claire Friedman yes. this is a lot of me at the top I apologize uh, for everyone who has to do this also I'm going to make a quick note there's a microphone here you may notice that it's not amplifying sound at all but it does pick up for the podcast so uh, use that thing you know okay we're all having fun so the nice thing uh, the nice thing about obsessively keeping a Google calendar uh, since 2007 is that when you need to tell a story about something that happened in like 2008 uh, you can go and get exact dates so that is how I know that on October 8th, 2008, um, is when I decided to leave college. Uh, and I know that because it was the sixth Saturday of my sophomore year, and I was sitting in my bedroom and crying because it was the sixth Saturday in a row since I had been at school that I didn't have anything to do with anyone. And I was like, this feels incorrect. Uh, so I, I started trying to figure out what it was that I did want to be doing. This isn't the first time I tried to leave school. I was at the University of Wisconsin-Madison the year before. I had had kind of a breakdown, you know, but it was like a freshman in college breakdown that everyone has. And, uh, cried a lot and, uh, decided that I wanted to move back home and go to the University of Minnesota. And this time around, it occurred to me, well, that time I didn't wind up transferring because uh, I wanted to – if I switched schools, I wanted to do it for the right reason. And uh, this time around, I realized that there are 49 other states that I could move to and so decided to expand my options and really give a lot of consideration to what I wanted to be doing. Um, I was a double major at the time in marketing and history of science. Uh, just to explain what history of science is, is exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> It's it's like a history major, but you only look at science. It's great and never would be useful in any any realm. 
Um, and also marketing, which is a degree that uh, helps teach you how to sell a bullshit degree like that. And <laughs> so that's where I was. And I was like in the business school and I'm like doing all this stuff. And I was like, yeah, I'm doing it. I'm doing exactly what I plan to do. Go to a Big Ten state school like my parents had always dreamed, uh, which is absolutely true. The fact that I didn't go to the University of Iowa was like made me the black sheep of the family. But at least I was going to a Big Ten school. Um, both of my parents were MBAs, and so that's where I was expecting to go as well. So I would just go straight from getting my business degree into going to grad school for reasons I didn't quite understand and then just be an, a business person. Um I was really struggling, though, because my whole life up to the age of 18 had been, how can I do the best at high school so that the rest of my life is okay? I don't. I had really had not thought past graduating from high school. And so it became this weird point where I had to really think about it and think about it really hard. And the, I remember one of the breaking points really came from uh, – I had a, a internship at a credit union in their marketing department. There were about six people, and every single one of the people who worked there had gone to a suburban Twin Cities high school and then gone to a public university in the state of Wisconsin and then moved back and gone to this marketing department. And I also fit that exact mold. And I was like, I, this could be me forever. I gotta go. So... One of the things that seemed impossible at the time was that I could do art because I was, like, painting for, like, six hours a day instead of doing my homework. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but that was, like, like why would, it, why would I ever do that? Like, I was, like, really, like, smart and, like, in all these AP classes and, like, smart people weren't artists. Like, that's, that doesn't make any sense. Um, <laughs> Why is that an applause line? Like, that's not true. I'm building up to how that's not true. I don't know who applauded. Someone over here. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, I started thinking a lot about it. And uh, one of the people I talked to was this girl, uh, also named Claire, that I went to high school with, who had gone to UW-Madison and wound up transferring halfway through and going to RISD. And, I, and she kind of helped me understand a lot about the art world. And another uh, person I talked to a lot was um, I had enrolled in a, in a drawing 101 class that semester. And so I talked to my TA a lot, who was, like, super supportive and wanted me to be an art major. And her name was also Claire, which I know is very confusing. <laughs> that was Claire Stigliani. And I also talked to my roommate a lot, who was also uh, thinking about tr switching into uh, an art degree or graphic design. And she was also Claire. Um, so it's Claire getting advice from three different Claire's. And uh, what's great is they're all the best people in the world because we all have the best name. And they were really supportive and helped me figure out what I wanted to do. And then I just had this. And so I, like, finally had purpose again. I was like, yes, homework that I give myself. Got to research all these schools. Got to figure out their deadlines. Got to figure out how to get all my, like, portfolio stuff together. What is What are the requirements for each? What are the best schools? Like, when can I visit them? When can I schedule trips? Bada, 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 bada. But the uh, hard first step that I needed to take before doing that was telling my MBA parents that I was going to be an art major. Um, and I was I was going to wait till I got home to do it, but I like the pressure built up too much, and I was just like too, like, I need to tell them this. I need to start my new life as an artist. <laughs> <laughs> and so I called my dad. And I said, uh, hey, 
So I've been thinking a lot, and I've been thinking a lot about, like, where I spend my time and, like, what I'm good at, what I do. And uh, I think I'm going to switch to be an art major. And there was silence on the phone for a second, and he said to me, thank God I didn't know what you were going to do with history of science. (laughs) (laughs) November 8th, I uh, took a mega bus down to Chicago, visited the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, and I had my first day there on June 3rd, 2008. June 3rd? That's wrong. September 3rd. (laughs) (laughs) Dummy. Uh, I wrote that September 3rd, 2008, and I haven't looked back since. Thanks. That's a really great history of science person. I don't know what you would do with that. All right, guys. So uh, Matt, uh, Tanner invited a ton of really excellent guests here tonight, uh, speakers who I've never met before, but I have total faith in Tanner. Tanner, this is all on you, dude. <laughs> no, uh, totally kidding. Coming to the stage, Tracy Hall. Right there. Hi, Tracy. Tracy is, by the way, the Deputy Commissioner of the Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events. Hi, everybody. Hi. I really did wear shoes. Um, <laughs> I did. I did. But I, I have um, a knee problem, and I was looking at, I was like, I don't want to fall in front of all these people. <laughs> um, before I um, go any further, I just want to say Claire has skills, right? right. <laughs> I was like... You know, I love hip-hop, so I'm not going to give it up. But I was like, you know, um, Eminem is a very dense writer, so you have to know what you're doing because he puts a lot on one beat. And you didn't slip, so I was like... (laughs) Okay, and then I also want to thank the adorable um, Tanner Wolfer. He is super smart and super generous and amazing. And I remember before I met him, somebody... I moved back to Chicago from New York to take this job and to really support artists in Chicago because that's, um, I think, what makes Chicago special. You know, I think, really, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. And um, when I came back, somebody said, you have to meet Tanner. And I kept hearing that. And when I met him, I saw why. And so he's just a great thought partner. And But anyway, he's not responsible for what I'm about to do. <laughs> <laughs> But this notion of discovery, the first thing I thought about with discovery is, you know, what was a big discovery for me? And I'm reading discovery as epiphany. What was a big epiphany? And one of the things that I was thinking about, I'm going to take this off because it's going to clink. One of the things that uh, was a big discovery for me was um, uh, really the real Kwanzaa. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about it. I'm a writer, so I, you know, I'm going to do what writers do. They read their work. All right. <laughs> so I'm going to give you a little history, then I'm going to talk about the epiphany really quick. An activist academic during a post-civil rights um, black power movement um, named Malena Karanga came up with the notion of an African-American holiday called Kwanzaa, meaning first fruits of the labor in 1966 as a way of creating a holiday rooted in the African tradition. 
celebrated just after Christmas from December 26th through January 1st. By the time I became a young adult, this African-American holiday, Kwanzaa, had not only taken hold of African-American imagination, it had also taken hold of my African-American imaginary as a um, teen. It's based on seven principles. The first one, Umoja, which means unity. The second one, Kujichagulia, which means self-determination. I would later study Swahili and the G is reflexive. So you can say, I cut myself. Niji kata. You know, it's like really important. You put that G in there, you did it to yourself. And I think that's hot. (laughs) (laughs) What other languages do? What other languages do? Also, to say et cetera in Swahili is nakadalika, nakadalika, nakadalika. So, you know, it's a hot language anyway. Um, Ujima, which means collective work and responsibility. Ujama, which means um, to build or cooperative economics. Nia, which means purpose. And then Kuumba, which means creative, creativity. And then finally, Imani, which is faith. All right, so now... Um, I was really into Kwanzaa. I got into Kwanzaa because it seemed like all the hip and cool people around me were in Kwanzaa. They were like into it. As soon as like Christmas would come, they'd be like, oh good, that's over. Now we can celebrate Kwanzaa. So we were always doing stuff. Like we were having like Kwanzaa celebrations in the post office. Did you know that some of the postal workers would actually have the keys to the post office and go in and just make this whole Kwanzaa festival while the post office was closed for the holidays? I would be like, you know what? I don't think that's right. But it's cool. It's really, really cool. So I'm going to tell you what happened for me with Kwanzaa. So by the time I got to college, all I could think about was um, all the things I was interested in. But I was very interested and fascinated with the idea of Africa. Anywhere in Africa. Africa has over 50 countries. I was like, anywhere, anywhere. So I signed up for my junior year bot. How many people did junior year bot? Right. And for how many people did that define you? It defined me. So I, you know, so I had this opportunity to go to Kenya and I'm going to study at the University of Nairobi. But most importantly, it doesn't matter that I'm going to study in this great school where some of the great writers are or have sent their kids. Wally Shoyinka, Chinyo Achebe's um, son, David, was there. Um, and Gugi Wathiongo's son, who is Wathu, um, wh- whose um, name is like the opposite of his. It's like the Yongo Wangugi, which is very, very interesting. I was like, this is wonderful. I'm studying with and front and um, with African uh, intellectuals. But the most important thing is I'm in the, in the land of Kwanzaa. So I have this roommate, Anyango, and Anyango has all of the cool, she's um, now like a sales rep or something in Toronto. I saw her just the other, you know, not too long ago. So anyway, but at the time, they're the cool kids. You know, they read, they're into art and all this other stuff, and she has this really best friend named Sionzi. Sionzi lives in this small village. A village is Kijiji in um, Swahili. So Sionzi, right around, you know, Christmas time, we're on break, and she says, Teresa, because no one could get my name, Tracy. She says, Teresa, do you want to come home with me for harvest? What? A Kwanzaa? Somebody's inviting me home for an authentic Kwanzaa? Oh, yes. I want. I don't even ask questions. She tells me what time she and her uncle are going to come pick me up, and I just pack my suitcase. And I'm, you know, I'm from L.A. originally, and I like to bling. I like to bling real, real hard. Like, this is like, you know, I'm just in drag, like work drag. But I really like to bling. I like to bling real, real hard, like Lil Wayne. You know, bling, bling, every time I come around your city, bling, bling. That's me. I like to bling real hard. So 
I have, I'm packing all the most impractical clothes because it's going to be like seven days so a week of Kwanzaa. So I pack like this red dress. It's all bling. I, I pack all my, all my shoes are bling. Oh, it's just amazing. So we get in this car. Her uncle takes us and he's supposed to take us just um, to the outskirts of town where we're going to take what I think is another taxi and soon we'll be home. Oh, it's ours. Oh, it's ours up and down. I think we went to Uganda. I don't know. We just kept going. Finally, by the time we get there, you know, okay, it's cool. And there's like a group of seven people. We would walk three more miles before we go to her small village. And okay, but it's Kwanzaa. So the first night, day one... No Kwanzaa. Her grandmother, who's like this really old wizened woman, asks, um, Tionzi, and they don't speak Swahili. They speak Kikuyu because they're Kikuyu in a whole nother village. She says, ask her what she wants to eat. So I said, I, I don't know, you know, chicken, that's fine. And her grandmother says, tell her to catch the one she wants. <laughs> All right. By day two, Sionzi is getting me up really early in the morning. Is you know it's harvest, so I put on my red dress, and I'm going to tell you really quickly what happened. I think her grandmother had looked at me and sized me up and said, "Oh, Sionzi, you brought home a good one this time." <laughs> I was working up a storm. They actually had a corn and bean, like maize and bean farm. We cle- we had to harvest, and I found out that really, when she meant harvest, when she said harvest, that's what she meant. We were picking for three days. Her grandmother, because I'm looking strong, her grandmother says, "Why don't you have her go up to this hill and bring home the bring down the water?" Because you know, again, there's no like. So I had to learn how to walk with one of those big jerry cans. And you know, one of the things I learned about my African sisters is the reason why they can roll those hips is because they have to. Because that's how you balance that water. My clothes were destroyed. My shoes were destroyed. But I'm going to tell you about the last day. So we're getting ready to go back to university. I think I have lost weight by this time. My no bling. I mean, really, I had these shoes with some rhinestone toes. Man, if you had seen those shoes, my goodness. But by the end of it, okay, they were very, very sad. And I left them there, actually. So that tells you what happened. But in any case, I remember the last night we had to go back um, to school. We were going to go back on that same journey. Her grandmother, who's kind of just um, keeping the, the hearth, you know, she's not out there working, but she's directing everybody. Um, we're around the fire, all the fields. You know, we have been out there, and I really learned how important agriculture is and stamina. But um, her grandmother starts to sing, and her grandmother has the most amazing voice. And I don't understand what she's saying, but you could tell that everybody else in the family was really getting enlivened by the grandmother singing. And it's a song, obviously, that meant something to them. And at some point... After she had been sitting there, she gets up and she started. She starts dancing, and she has just enough energy to do her dance. And then her son, who has also come home, he joins his mother, and he's dancing. And the look in their faces, and we were all weary and tired and working from sun up to sundown. Somehow, in that dance and in that fire and in the loss of my bling, I realized what Kwanzaa really was. That it is about a harvest, a harvest of that flow of when you give and take, when you contribute um, to something that is bigger than you, that you might not just reap the benefits from directly, but that you really have been a contribution. And I knew that my bringing the water and my helping had really contributed to this family and that um, the reason why Sionzi had asked me home for the harvest is because they needed the help. And so now... 
I really know what Kwanzaa is, and that was my discovery. Thank you so much, Tracy. Great. All right, guys, coming next to the area nearby the stage, this is a professor at UIC and designer and morning star, Mr. Philip Burton. There you go, sir. I subscribe to the Oprah Winfrey School of Audience Engagement, so I... Touch me! Can we get this thing out of the way? So uh, I'm a designer and a teacher. I've been teaching for 40 years. I used to uh, tell people that I started teaching when I was 10 years old, but they don't, they don't believe that anymore. And um, one of the things that happens to you after you've taught for 40 years all over the world is that these people come up to you and they stand in front of you and they say, remember me? And um, I never remember them. Uh, but I pretend that I remember them. Now, I have some students here tonight, actually, and I, I know who they all are <laughs> because they're most more recent students. But, um, <laughs> uh, you know, and you, you, you talk to these people. I pretend like I know them, and you, you talk to them, uh, engage them in conversation, and they think that you remember their work and their grades and their favorite color and their birthday and all this stuff, and you kind of go along with it. So I've decided um, that I'm going to initiate a program whereby the students tattoo, you know, this is the age of tattooing, that they tattoo their names on their foreheads so that when they come up, I know who they are. Um, Tanner wanted me to, uh, speaking of teaching, Tanner wanted me to tell the story tonight of um, Matthew Teredich, who's speaking later. He's um, very nerdy. And uh, the story is that uh, at his um, senior student show, he vomited all over the floor, and I had to pay the janitor $20 to clean it all up. But that... But that's, um, I actually have another story that I want to tell you. I have a reputation <laughs> for uh, telling stories. And last week was the SEGD uh, National Conference here in Chicago. SEGD used to mean Society of Environmental Graphic Design, and now it means Society of, what, Tanner? Experiential. Experiential Graphic Design. And one of the speakers, somebody told me, former student probably, told me that um, one of the speakers was Alicia Wolfson, who's the design director at uh, Leo Burnett. And she told uh, a story of her life, a little bit about her life, and she showed a photograph of her standing with a group of students on top of a mountain. Uh, and I was there. I was in the picture. So Alicia, I don't remember what year it was, but Alicia uh, participated in a five-week... I'm going to kill myself on this court. <laughs> Alicia participated in a five-week summer design workshop that was held in the Italian part of Switzerland in a little town called Brizago, 2,000 residents in the winter, 4,000 residents in the summer. 
Brazago is um, the last town in Switzerland before you reach the Italian border. The next town is Canobio. It's um, surrounded by Alps, snow-capped Alps, usually. Uh, and it's on a lake. Uh, a quarter of the lake is in Switzerland. The other three-quarters of the lake uh, is in Italy. The lake is fed by uh, snow, so it's ice cold. So here are these kids, 20 kids from all over the world, uh, studying, Brisa- studying design in Brazago for five weeks. On this lake, surrounded by mountains, and the configuration of those two things is such that it captures semi-tropical air. So there are palm trees and banana trees and bamboo trees. I mean, it is truly paradise, this place. And um, part of the routine, it wasn't really routine, but part of the curriculum always involved climbing up this mountain called Pizzolione. Uh, the program, for those of you who, I mean, this is, after all, sponsored by the Design Museum. Um, so uh, those of you who are designers or are familiar with designers um, might recognize some of these names. But the program was started by a guy named Armin Hoffman, who uh, taught in Basel at the Schule für Gestaltung in Basel for 40 years. Uh, the reason why the program was in Brasago is because he and his wife had a house in a little village uh, up above Brisago. And um, the core faculty was made up of Armin uh, and his wife, Dortea, uh, Paul Rand, uh, Wolfgang Weingart, Herbert Mader, Richard Sapper, the industrial designer, and, was, and me. <laughs> what, what, uh, I did this for 22 summers. Um, uh, I, I can tell you honestly, I have no idea why I was part of this illustrious group, but nevertheless I was. And uh, we were augmented over the years by uh, different designers like uh, Ivan Shermayev and Fritz Gottschalk, people like that. So the reason why we would climb this mountain is because uh, what Armand wanted to happen to these kids who were there is that they understood where they were. They understood what this place was and what kind of influence that had on the design that they did. So one year, it was 1985, we hired, uh, I didn't hire anybody, Armin hired Alvin Eisenman to come and teach. He felt like he had to because uh, Armin uh, taught off and on for many years at, at Yale University and Alvin Eisenman had started the graduate program in graphic design at Yale University in 1950 at the request of Joseph Albers. You may be familiar with him. So uh, Alvin, uh, Armin, Armin, Alvin, Armin, Alvin, Armin invited Alvin to come over. And Alvin um, died a couple years ago, actually. Armin will be 95 years old on the 29th of this month. So... Um, Armin invited Alvin. Alvin is, is, was a very, very smart man. You know, he could tell you the history of the Kleenex if you wanted to know what it was. So he sent over tons of books, and the project that he gave to the students had to do with the study of uh, prehistoric icons from around the world. 
you know, we're in a little town that doesn't have a library, doesn't have a copy machine, you know, stuff like that. And so he sent over these these books, and the end of the project was um, a book that the students created, uh, <clears throat> documenting all these different um, uh, uh, icons from around the prehistoric icons. So Alvin had read somewhere that in northern Italy there were these petroglyphs, and he thought that we should go there as part of his week of teaching and see these things, you know, the real thing. We had never taken the students away from the city during the five weeks we were there, so there was this colossal effort to organize a trip to take these kids someplace and stay overnight someplace else. We, we went by private bus. The, the driver's name was Alcide, and I mention that only because he was probably the best driver in the world. The roads were on these, these cliffs at the sides of mountains, you know, um, and they were under construction, and you think, you know, one false move, and you, you fall to your death. It, it was great. And so we left Brazago, we went to Locarno, we went to Lugano, uh, we went to Como, we went to Sondrio, we went to Aprico, and finally, at a little town called uh, Udolo, we turned south and we drove to Capo de Ponte which is in the, in the middle of Val Camonica, the Camonica Valley. And that's where all these things are. There are thought to be as many as 300,000 of these petroglyphs. These are petroglyphs. They are etchings in stone, and they are. it, it is magnificent to see them in person. I mean, you can't believe it. So we had arranged to stay at a guest house in Capo di Ponte, we ate there, sort of Italian style, family style, fabulous Italian cooking, wonderful wine, so on and so forth. We um, uh, had permission, official permission from the Italian government that we could do rubbings of these things, which we did with um, carbon paper. Actually, it's the best way to do a rubbing if you're ever going to do a rubbing. Uh, so then after dinner, uh, our... Guide this guy named Aurelio Priuli, who had devoted his life to studying these petroglyphs. He created a little museum in town where you could go and see some of them. But what he really liked to do was to take people out into the field, uh, the stones, crawling around these stones and what have you, and, and do these rubbings. I mean, it was really a wonderful thing. So after dinner, we're getting close to the end. After dinner, he decided that we should make an excursion. It was starting to get dark. And we piled, not all of us, but some of us piled into the, the bus, and he guided the bus driver to this remote location up in the mountains, and we walked and we walked. And finally, uh, he said, stop, and he had these um, floodlights that he would shine onto the stone in front of us so that we could see these incisions. And we could see uh, shapes of houses and rivers and fields and things like that. And it was a replication of what we could see down in the valley beyond the stone. This was a UNESCO World Heritage Site. 
And what we were looking at, what this man had taken us to see, is what is thought of as the very first map in the history of the world. The end. Thank you so much. Philip Burton, everybody. That is sweet. All right, guys, someone do your homework. Take out a map. Track his story. Send it to me. We'll post it on the website. You'll get credit. It's going to be super cool. It is easy, but I want these guys to do it. I want you all to do your work. All right, guys, we have two more stories, and we are going to take a short break. Why am I holding this like a stand-up? I don't know. What's the deal with coming next to the stage, the Director of Strategic Innovation for YMCA National? This is Joey Nakayama. Hey, y'all. All All right, so quick audience poll. How many people here, since it is design week, are designers or can somehow self-identify as a designer? Just shout it out. It's a podcast. Stop raising your hands. Just shout it out. Okay. (laughs) All right, so of, of you who are designers, how many of you feel like you were destined from birth to be a designer? Like it was when you when you were five years old, you dreamed of having the job you have now. Your parents were... One. Okay, awesome. Uh, okay, uh, or you came from a long lineage of designers somehow. Right? So it's not too many people. I've got one. Maybe maybe two. There's a hesitant two. Okay. Um, so that's kind of one thing that's interesting about this profession, right, is everyone has to find it somehow. Uh, and, um, and it's always a process of discovery, right? So, <clears throat> and I love asking designers the question, um, how did you become a designer? Because the stories are always really interesting. So I figured that I would share my story with you. And if it's not interesting, it's Tanner's fault because <laughs> he's the one who invited me to this. All right. Um, so as a child, there were already signs that I was going to turn out a little weird. Um, I was uh, obsessed with origami as maybe a six-year-old. Um, I remember actually uh, bragging to other kids and adults and like the cat, anyone who would listen, about how many steps were in something I made. So I was like, this this turtle is 47 steps. <laughs> and I don't remember any visible signs of admiration that came out of this, but, but I'm sure in their hearts they were impressed. Um, and then I'd also do things like, um, like intricate drawings of trees. So like I'd, a branch splitting off into another branch and another and another, like finer and finer until it basically took up the whole page. Right, so... In adolescence, this morphed into very detailed drawings of Metallica band members in charcoal. Um, Things like uh, I I made jewelry out of hardware store and office supply parts um, that I wore to high school because fashion for me at that point was basically a giant social experiment to keep myself amused and keep everyone else around me just really confused. so, yeah, but high school I was interested in all sorts of things. I was interested in geometry and physics, and but uh, the art classes that I had were the ones that I was most passionate about. Like, those are the ones that would keep me up late at night and not really realize I was losing time. Um, but there, there, too, I was also a little weird. Uh, I would get really into the creation of something, but then when it was finished, uh, I always felt a little underwhelmed. And it wasn't necessarily because it didn't turn out the way I wanted it. And as a matter of fact, like, uh, most of the stuff I did kind of turned out the way I had envisioned it in the first place, but it just felt kind of closed off in its finishedness, if that makes any sense. It's like it was done and then it was done. 
Um, I never really wanted to repeat anything either. Like I'd learn a technique, and after that, I never kind of wanted to do it again. I wanted to move on to something else. And I didn't know much about art marketing at that point, but I figured that was probably a bad thing if I wanted to become a working artist, like not having a completely inconsistent body of work. <clears throat> so... When it came time to choose to start looking at schools and choose a major, um, I, I really didn't know what to do. So I, I liked all these different things. I loved art, but I didn't want to become an artist because I didn't want to sell stuff and all of that. Um, and, and one day I kind of had this, this epiphany that uh, I was a process nerd. Right. I, it wasn't, it wasn't the, the creation, it wasn't the thing that I liked, it was the creation of the thing. It was taking a new technique or a new skill and try to use that to create some sort of result. That was what really got me going. So when I found industrial design in um, an index of college majors of all places, <laughs> I was like, oh, this could be kind of a cool thing. So I checked out some design firms. I checked out some schools. Um, and I was like, this is awesome for a couple of reasons. One, uh, it, it's, it's got creative problem solving at its core. Um, but it also it allowed me to incorporate a lot of other kinds of learning that I had. I think the more you know about the world and other aspects of the world, the better of a designer you can be. Um, so that, that was really exciting. And the second one was it seemed like a good way to indefinitely delay any decision I really wanted to make about what I wanted to be when I grew up. It seemed like a good way to just <clears throat> keep learning things and try to mash that into whatever it was I was doing as a designer. Um, so I, I applied to RISD. I got in, which was awesome. Someone else had a RISD story. Uh, no? Okay. RISD was mentioned, so I made it about – I made in my mind, I made it all about RISD. Um, and uh, – Graduated, got a job at a consulting firm doing industrial design. Um, so it was everything from like a kid's paint marker to a tennis racket to an implantable defibrillator. It was kind of like a huge um, broad swath of work. So it worked out. But um, my process nerddom has served me pretty well since. Um, for me, it's, uh, it's all about following my curiosity. And I've discovered that um, discovery in and of itself is a process that I can nerd out on. So that led me from the design of objects to the design of services and experiences <clears throat> and um, later on into more uh, social impact uh, arenas where um, just three weeks ago I landed a job at the YMCA's Director of Strategic Innovation, which is applying a lot of the same principles to big social problems. So that's my story. Um, thank you. And I hope and I hope to hear yours someday too. So thank you. I have uh, for me an important follow up question. So who is your favorite member of Metallica to draw on charcoal? Yeah. Ooh, I'm not gonna choose. That would be mean. Okay. <laughs> for me I feel like it would be Lars. He's kinda got like uh, to draw. I'm not saying he's my favorite member. Come on. He's a terrible drummer. But to draw booing? Yeah, Dwight is booing. Crazy. <laughs> Guys, we have one more story, then we are going to take a short break. Coming up next, the Vice President at AIGA Chicago, Mike Josie. I've always wanted to live out my dream of being Michael Stipe, if anybody knows that reference. Uh, I, have to, I have to read the lyrics here, but it's not a song. All right. Uh, so, welcome to the pale, sweaty portion of the evening. <laughs> don't uh, don't look at my armpits, please. All right, so uh, I want you guys to close your eyes for a second and picture something with me. You're standing in the center of a shopping mall. You look over to your right, and there's a food court. You glance up, there's an escalator over there, and wings of the mall going out there and, and over there. There's a hum in the background of people. 
uh, chatting and eating and walking, shuffling bags against their pant legs, losing the grip of their children's hands. Muzak plays off in the distance, the cool of air conditioning present but never overwhelming. It feels anonymous but reassuring. And then, like a coin-operated viewing scope that's gone off, you're out of there. That was my first mall dream. Uh, it, uh, it, it came back often, in fact, dozens of times. Um, at first, they were wonderfully boring, and I'd never had boring dreams before. Um, I always had the weird ones that obeyed that foreign logic of your subconscious running wild. Um, but the mall dream somehow reflected the inanity of reality. There were low stakes. There were low goals. There was no craziness. Uh, it was just walking, satisfying the only curiosity of wanting to see where I could go. So the next dream arrived a few nights later, and I began my exploration. Every night felt like a tiny milestone. I found the skating rink near the food court. I found another atrium. I sat by the indoor fountains. I passed an orange Julius. <laughs> I saw the entrances to the department stores. I found the movie theater with its dark carpeted hallways and low ceilings. I went to the back hallway behind the mall where the offices and security offices are. One night it came to the end of the mall. You guys know what I'm talking about by that? It's that like badly lit corner where the mall walkers turn around. (laughs) Um, When I did encounter windows in this mall, it was always daylight out and light was streaming in and there were relatively few people around. Occasionally it was completely silent. Other times there was the sound of activity in the distance. I never interacted with anybody, which you'd think going there night after night, month after month, I'd made friends with security guards or something. Eventually, I took the hallways and escalators and the department stores uh, to the department stores at the outer edges of the mall. There was wood paneling in the men's store. There's bright off-white tiles on the floor. Checkout registers scattered throughout. And I went outside. And outside, there was parking lots with diagonal spaces and yellow lines. Again, everything ordinary. But after a while, I realized something after night after night after these dreams. I had stopped being able to go back into the mall. I somehow got stuck in the department stores and their parking lots, and I felt like a loss with this development. Like, this was my mall. I had the map in my mind. I could have told you how to get to the atrium from anywhere. Um, And I didn't understand why I wasn't allowed to go back inside. So night after night, I'd go back to these parking lots, but never back inside the mall. I knew it was there, but it was closed off to me somehow. So I went outward. And you know how there's uh, shops at the other end of the parking lot from the mall um, uh, where the parking lots bleed into another, each other. Uh, I walked through these instead, and I found a record store and a jewelry store and a uh, bookstore and a tire store. By this time, the sun was always about to set in these dreams, uh, just behind the buildings, actually, and the parking lots were very empty. Eventually, the mall was one more thing in the background, like those trees clustered together in parking lot islands. And I went out further. You know, when you're approaching a mall, there's always that higher density of shops and restaurants. That's where the Chili's is and the Barnes & Noble and the Target. That's how you know the mall is nearby. (laughs) So suddenly I was on the roads to the mall, uh, which was a place I would get to eventually like a nagging thought. I was perpetually on the first half of an errands run that never quite got completed. In these dreams, it was nighttime now, and I remember being aware uh, that the mall was going to close before I could get there. And then, years after these dreams started, uh, I was only a passerby. In those dreams, I was in a car driving past the mall. It was on a hilltop up there overlooking the freeway, but I couldn't exit off that freeway. I approached it from another direction, and there it was off in the distance, um, but I didn't know the route to take to get there. I was lost in this city, driving for dozens of blocks looking for the right street, 
I couldn't navigate this thing that I had built. It, I couldn't return to its origin. It had grown wildly like a vine on a wall, out of my control. And then, after more you know, months and months of these dreams, I realized they had stopped completely. I was traveling a lot for work then, and all my dreams were stress dreams about going to the airport and forgetting my passport or getting to the hotel and looking for my room or going to the convention center and, and try, searching for my name badge. The only thing unifying those dreams was a sense of unease and uncertainty. I was no longer at a place that felt familiar that I had spent years exploring. The dreams reflected the opposite, actually. I was a citizen of nowhere, far from home, unable to figure out where I was heading. On some level, my mall was everyone I'd been to growing up, patched together elegantly with no seams showing. On every road trip my family took in every city, we always went to the mall in Richmond and Pittsburgh, Austin, Baltimore, Charleston. There was an underground one in Montreal. They were the, it was the malls that I went to with friends to just bum around on the cheap. Uh, their names were all taken from the same small pool of nouns. South Park, Town Center, Regency Square, Cloverleaf. They all had dark, carpeted movie theater hallways. They all had orange julii. I don't know if that's actually a word, but fuck it. Maybe it represented the very concept of the mall. Uh, It was the photos I I saw all the time of the overgrown dead malls that had been long closed down and water was seeping inside. It was the faded postcards of the malls in Southern California of the 60s and 70s, the time capsules of fashion of suburban malls in the 80s. It was the malls I found in the downtowns of cities like San Francisco or Block 37. They grow upwards, not outwards. Or maybe it represented growing up itself. I was 21 or 22 when the mall dream started, and they lasted most of my 20s. I had had multiple jobs, lived in multiple cities, bought a house, become overworked and undervacationed. What started as calm curiosity turned into anxiety and fear until it was replaced by dreams far more stressful. Now, those are the dreams I was curious about now. Could it be they may be represented trying to return to the mall somehow? I read once that the translation of the word wanderlust means uh, a desire to return to a place you've never been. Some nights when it all comes flooding back to me, I ask myself, does it still exist somewhere? Why did I create it? I try to find answers, but you guys know the subconscious is no place for answers. The mall is somewhere out there, just out of sight, always around the next corner. Maybe it's a plane right away. I remain proud of it this universe whose big bang I witnessed. I gave it back to that fog that all dreams emerge from. And some nights ask for the chance to return just one more time. I want to see how that Orange Julius is doing. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Listen, if you ever want to live out that REM dream, man, I know I know some of those tunes. Let's do it. Me and you next month. Yeah. So this is a, this is a song. Uh, by a person who was also discovered. Who, who discovered? I don't know the story here. I don't know either. Oh, Jay Z. Oh, discovered oh, okay. Rihanna. Yeah. Oh, come on. <laughs> so, here's but some, we're not doing Rihanna. Here we go. Here's some Jay. <laughs> you have my heart, and we'll never be worlds apart. Maybe in magazines, but you'll still be my star. Cause baby, in the dark, you can't see shiny cars That's when you need me there With you I'll always share Because when the sun shines, we'll shine together Told you I'll be here forever Said I'll always be a friend Took a note, I'ma stick it out till the end Now that it's raining more than ever 
at each other. You can stand under my umbrella. You can stand under my umbrella. Ella, Ella, eh, 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 these fancy things. Never come in between. Never come in between. You're part of my entity. My infinity. When the war has took its part. When the world has dealt its cards. If the hand is hard. Together we'll mend your heart. Because when the sun shines, we'll shine together. Told you I'll be here forever. Said I'll always be a friend. Took an oath, I'ma stick it out till the end. Now that it's raining more than ever, know that we'll still have each other. You can stand under my umbrella. You can stand under my umbrella. Ella, Ella, eh, 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 under my umbrella. Ella, Ella, eh, 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 under my umbrella. proud member of the Chicago Podcast Co-op. If you like this show, you should also try an hour with your ex. Comedians Mel Evans and Mark Coulomb force each other to watch their favorite movies and TV. The title started as a joke, but led to a marriage. But it's still just a podcast. This has been a Nerdalogs production. For more on the Nerdalogs and our shows, please go to www.nerdalogs.com. Thank you all. Thank you all.
I am Grabbot23548X.